This anointed teaching by Apostle Theo Volmerans comes to you from Christian Family Church International. Hi, family. So glad we can come together in church again. Praise the Lord. Now, I know that we only have a limited amount of people who are allowed to attend at this point, and there are folks still in their homes. But for those of us who have come together at church, it's so exciting to be together. Won't you give the Lord a great big praise God? Let's hear that. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right. Let's begin. God blesses the faithful. This is part five in our mini-series. And uh, we are going to be looking at the inheritance of the faithful. What is in store for us who serve God, who love God, and who keep believing in Jesus, not turn away from Jesus. All right? First question, will there be families in heaven? Will there be families in heaven? Well, not as we have had on earth. But all of us will be one big family, even closer than we had on earth. And all those who were part of our families on earth will be even closer than we were when we were on earth. All right, Matthew 22, verse 30 says, Jesus said, For when the dead rise, they won't be married. They will be like the angels in heaven. Here's a big question. Will there be sex in heaven? There will not be any sex in heaven. But since all joy and pleasure is created by God... There will be enjoyment in heaven that satisfies our hearts far more than sex. There will be no sexual desires between a man and a woman. No sexual attractions. All right, let's change gears here now. No one will be intimidated and no one will feel rejected in heaven or on a new earth. Everybody will feel important. Everybody will feel valuable and valued in heaven. When parents arrive in heaven, if they have children that have gone on before them, no matter what the circumstances, as tragic as that would be, when the parents arrive in heaven, their children will be overjoyed to see them every time every time. They will immediately know their father and their mother have arrived and they'll be excited to run and jump into their arms. In heaven, everyone will be your friend. Everyone will rejoice to see you, to meet you, to know you, and to fellowship with you. What about our loved ones, our friends, our family, who have gone to hell, will that spoil our eternal heaven experience? In heaven, we will understand everything as God understands it. We'll understand how desperately God reached out to people 
and how they refused to listen. We'll understand how God's love and mercy pursued them, and yet they rejected God's love and mercy. In heaven we will weep for them whom we love, for whom we have lost. But then we will fully agree with the Heavenly Father in His righteous judgment. We'll be overwhelmed by the amount of love and grace that God displayed in drawing and calling people. Even so, many rejected Him. No, we will never blame God for our loved ones who are in hell. On the contrary, we will recognize that those in hell have received what they deserve. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to purchase our salvation. He suffered in hell so that we don't have to go there. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even so, there will be many who refuse to believe in Jesus, refuse to worship Jesus because of the salvation that he has offered. God cannot be held responsible for their, eternal, their eternity if they go to hell. God cannot be held responsible for their decision. All right, Revelation 21 verse 4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no pain, for the former things have passed away. Once the Father has wiped away our tears, we will no longer be sad for those who have gone to hell. The Father will remove the pain from our hearts. All we'll have is the memory of those people with no pain. Our true family will be with us in heaven forever. The true family are all believers in Christ and all the family members that we had on earth that will be close to us in heaven for eternity. We will have different cultures in heaven. Is that a good question? Will we? Yes, we will. Absolutely, the various cultures that we have on earth, with the beautiful singing, the dress of those different cultures, uh, with their different accents and their different manner, all those different mannerisms will be loved and enjoyed by all of us. Here's a big question. Will animals inhabit the new earth and heaven? This is what will happen. After Jesus becomes king on earth during the millennium reign, let's talk about that first because that will help us understand that question about the animals. All right, go to Isaiah 11, verse 6. Now, this is after Jesus becomes king on earth during his millennium reign, a thousand-year reign on earth. Isaiah 11, verse 6 says, In that day, 
The wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions. And little children will lead them all. Imagine a, children, a child walking in front of a lion, taking him for a walk. The cattle will graze among bears. Cubs and calves will lie down together. And lions will eat grass as the livestock do. So just like a cow eats grass, so a lion will eat grass next to a cow. Eight. Babies will crawl safely among poisonous snakes. Yes, a little child will put his hand into a nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. All right, so what we've just read takes place on earth during the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, when he comes back to earth to rule here for 1,000 years. We'll talk more about that shortly, about his reign on earth. However, what we've just read about uh, the lifestyle, nothing hurting or harming, babies walking with animals that are wild and brocious and putting their hands in the nest of snakes and not being hurt, all that happens on earth when Christ rules here. Now, if that happens on earth, then why would that not happen on the new earth? That's exactly what life will be like on the new earth and in heaven. Nothing will hurt or harm. Isaiah 65, and we read about babies here, by the way. Babies will be born during the millennium reign of Christ. There will be people on the earth at that time who lived through the tribulation period, who survived all of that. We'll come back, and we'll be here on earth with them. And they will have babies. We will not have babies. They will. In heaven, no one's going to be having babies in heaven. No baby is born in heaven. No baby is born on the new earth. The only babies that there will be are those who die as children here and go to heaven and grow up in heaven. Okay. Isaiah 65 verse 17. Look, this is the Old Testament now. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. So wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Imagine that. The new heaven and new earth God is going to create or has created or is creating is going to be so more superior and beautiful and enjoyable and fun than the existing earth that we won't even remember this earth. It's like an old broken down bicycle that you used to have when somebody buys you a brand new Ferrari. After driving the Ferrari for a few months, somebody says, where's your bicycle? You're going to say, uh, bicycle? <laughs> you won't remember. All right. We can see in the scripture we're going to read now 
that there were animals in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. Important. Before they sinned. Animals were in the Garden of Eden. All right, go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever ever Adam called them, each living creature, that was its name. Where was Adam when God brought all these animals to him? He was in the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper compared to him. So take careful note now of how God preserved the animals during Noah's flood. All right? Go to Genesis 6, verse 17. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with the flood that will destroy every living thing. Everything on earth will die. God said that to Noah. But I solemnly swear to keep you, Noah, safe in the boat, in the ark, with your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of each kind of bird, each kind of animal, large and small alike, will come to you to be kept alive. All right, so Noah, you only have to go out and hunt for these animals. Just stay at the ark, keep the door open, and they'll come walking to you two by two. Just let them inside. Psalm 50 and verse 10. For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Every bird of the mountains and all the animals of the field belong to me. Thus says the Lord. God promises that all creation will be restored to its full inheritance as it was during the time of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so we're talking about animals in heaven, animals on the new earth. We're laying, we, we're laying the case out to prove that that will happen. So just hang in there for a moment. Now let's go to Romans 8 verse 19. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subject to God's curse. So when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse came on all of creation. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. Animals changed. They started eating each other. Weeds grew. Now, here in the New Testament, we're reading Romans, right? 
verse 21, chapter 8, verse 21, all creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. What's that? This is saying that the earth, the animals, the trees, everything is looking forward to the day that the earth is restored to its full glory as it was in the Garden of Eden, Eden just as God has done for us who are born again. That's the paraphrase version. If God created animals and put them in the Garden of Eden, then he brought them through the great flood with Noah. And then he says he's going to redeem them and restore them to their full past glory as they were in the Garden of Eden. Now let me make this point very clear here. All of that redemption of animals, the trees, the birds, the vegetation, all of that was paid for by Christ on Calvary. Not just our redemption, but the redemption of the whole earth was paid for. Whatever Adam lost through his sin, God has restored through Christ back as it was in the Garden of Eden. So, right here in verse 21, it says that all creation is longing for the day that the curse is broken and comes back. Well, Christ paid for it, and they're going to have all that in the millennium reign of Christ and also in the new earth and the new heaven. So then, why is it unreasonable to expect that God will have animals with us in heaven if it's all paid for by Calvary? And if God preserved them through Noah's flood, and if God brought them into, and they were in, the Garden of Eden initially anyway, then why is it unreasonable to expect that God will have animals with us in the new heaven and the new earth? I don't see why we can't expect to see our pets in heaven if we ask God to bring Scampy or <laughs> Snoopy or whatever the dog's names are or cat's names are. I can't see why God wouldn't answer that prayer because after all, he did say in John 16, 13, whatever you ask me in, my name, in the name of Jesus, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I'm sure that includes your pet going to heaven. And since looking at all that we've looked at, God loves animals. They're all his. He said so. The cattle in a thousand hills belong to him. All right. So since the Father wants to give us all things, whatever we ask for, that our joy may be full, certainly he wants to bring scampy or rough or whoever it is to heaven for you. Amen. The scripture explains that we will come back with Christ. We're changing gears here. We'll come back with Christ to the earth after three and a half years of heaven. So the rapture takes place in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. The time of persecution takes place the first three and a half years. We enter a great time of persecution. The mark of the beast is offered, and then it's enforced, and we are raptured. 
Then the second two and a half years of tribulation is when God pours out His wrath on the earth. The seals are broken. And those that miss the rapture have their heads cut off if they refuse to renounce Christ. So because they say, I'm a believer in Jesus, they cut their heads off. They go to heaven. When they get there, the marriage feast of the Lamb takes place. We all are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Then at the end of the seven-year period, after being there for three and a half years, we come back with Jesus to the earth, right? And Christ lands on the Mount of Olives. I'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, Christ conquers the Antichrist and his armies, which march down upon Israel. We'll be watching events unfold during the reign of the Antichrist and counting the days until we go with Christ to the greatest battle in the history of the universe, the Battle of Armageddon. After conquering the enemies of Israel, Christ will be crowned king and take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Let's see if we can prove all this from the Scripture. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Now this is about Israel. This is about Israel just before Christ returns with us to fight for Israel. Uh, but during this time now, all the armies of the world have marched onto Israel and the battle begins as the war begins against Israel. So we're picking up what happens here in that fierce, awesome battle. Zechariah 14.1 Watch for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. Talking about the Jews in Israel. On that day, I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. Now, I want to clarify that. It says, on that day, I will gather. It sounds like God is bringing the nations to, to fight Israel. Now, I've explained this before, but I need to explain it again. In the Hebrew language, you have a causative verb and a passive verb. In the English language, you only have a causative verb. So this is translated in the causative sense, which actually should be written as follows. On that day, I will allow the nations of the earth to come fight against Israel or Jerusalem. Okay. The city will be taken, the houses plundered, and the woman raped. Half the population will be taken away into captivity, and half will be left among the ruins of the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. The question is, why would God even allow that to happen? Well, do you remember when Jesus was being crucified and he was standing in judgment before Pilate? Pilate said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. But the Jews all shouted, his blood be on us and our children's children. Terrible thing that they said. But, nevertheless, God is merciful to the Jews, his people, and he's coming to rescue them 
even though they did reject him that way and they crucified him, he still loves them and he's coming to save them and restore them back to himself. Look at verse 4. On that day, Christ's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's on the east side of Jerusalem, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. For half the mountain will move toward the north and half toward the south. Now, we are going to leave Zechariah 14 here, come right back in a moment. So let's go to Zechariah 12 and verse 10. We'll come back to Zechariah 14 in a moment. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Then I'll pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on all the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me, that's on Christ, they'll look on Christ, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for Christ as for a firstborn son who has died. So all of Israel will see Christ on the Mount of Olives in all of his glory, and they will mourn for him as if they have lost their firstborn child in, in, their, in their family. Now, why is that? Because they rejected him, they crucified him, they see the marks, and they realize they crucified their Messiah, and it totally blows their mind. Verse 11. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the grievous mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. So the Valley of Megiddo has a reputation of very serious mourning. Things that happened in the Valley of Megiddo over the years, it has the reputation of being a place of sadness and sorrow and terrible grief. And so here the Bible says that they will mourn like that. All Israel will weep in profound sorrow, each family by itself, with the husbands and wives in separate groups, the family of David will mourn along with the family of Nathan, the family of Levi, and the family of Shemi. Each of the surviving families from Judah will mourn separately, husbands and wives apart. Now let's go to Revelation 16. We'll come back to Zechariah. Revelation 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River. And it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies westward without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These miracle-working demons caused all the rulers of the world to gather for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God Almighty. Take note, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep the robes ready, so they will not need to walk naked and ashamed. And they gathered all the rulers 
and their armies to a place called Armageddon in Hebrew. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple in heaven, saying, It is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and there was an earthquake, greater than ever before in human history. The great city of Babylon split into three pieces, and cities around the world fell into heaps of rubble. And so God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was full with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared, and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and the hailstones weighing 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the hailstones, which was a very terrible plague. Now let's go back to uh, Zechariah 14, verse 5. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across Azale. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him, that's you and me, will come with Jesus. When he lands on the Mount of Olives, we'll be hovering over all this watching. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night. For at evening time, it will still be light. So throughout the reign of Christ on the earth, there'll be light, apparently, the whole time. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously both in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord, his name alone will be worshipped as Jesus. And Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away, their eyes will shrivel in their sockets and their tongues will decay in their mouths. On that day, they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will fight against each other in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So, on that day, the nations that have come against Israel will kill themselves. Judah, too, will be fighting at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the neighboring nations will be captured great quantities of gold and silver and fine clothing. The same plague will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the other animals in the enemy camps. In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague 
will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Shelters. Now, the Festival of Shelters, what's that? Well, Passover celebrates or is fulfilled through the death of Jesus. The Atonement Festival was fulfilled through salvation being offered by Jesus. And the festival of first harvest is the resurrection. And Pentecost, as we know, is the, when the Holy Spirit came down uh, on the 50th day in the back book of Acts chapter 2. And the festival of shelters is the thanksgiving, thanksgiving, celebrating all the harvest of souls, the harvest of human souls that Christ paid for. That's the festival of shelters. All right, so that's, we'll be celebrating that together. Now, verse 17, and any nation anywhere in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, will have no rain, no rain. And if the people of Egypt refuse to attend the festival, the Lord will punish them with the same plague that he sends on the other nations who refuse to come and worship Jesus. Egypt and the other nations will all be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of shelters. Christ proceeds with us to the valley of Megiddo where he fights the war of the battle of Armageddon, the greatest and largest, fierce, most fierce, fiercest of all battles. As I said, he speaks a word, and the enemy nations kill themselves. All right, Revelation 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures, flying high in the sky, come, gather, for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, captains, and strong warriors, and horses, and their riders, and all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast gathering the kings of the earth and their armies in order to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him, the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. All right? So the beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet is the leader of false religion. And he will be doing great, mighty miracles to deceive the nations to worship the Antichrist, who claims to be Christ. All right, verse 20 again. And the beast was captured, and with him, the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped the statue, his statue. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. All right, so we notice then that both the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who is the leader of false religion, the great whore, False religion is the great whore. The great whore, the great prostitute, 
the prostitute, Phosphorogen, tries to impersonate the bride. The bride are the pure, blood-washed, five-on-five virgins. And Phosphorogen is the prostitute, the whore, that bluffs everybody, deceives everybody to think they are right. And we are wrong. So the leader of the false religion, the false prophet, will do miracles, signs, and wonders, and people will flock to those false religious churches where they don't have to give up any bad, evil stuff that they do. But they'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which is Gehenna, the lake of burning sulfur, at the beginning of the millennium reign of Christ, right at the battle of Armageddon. That's where they go, straight there, into the lake of fire. Now, what happens to the devil? Because he's not mentioned there in verse 20. All right, 21. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came out the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And all the vultures of the sky gorged themselves on the dead bodies. So what is this sword that came from the mouth of Christ riding on the white horse? It's his word. He he spoke a word, and the armies of the world attacked each other. All right, now I'm going to read from Revelation 20, verse 1, out of the New King James translation. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things... He must be released for a little while. So the devil will be released after a thousand years to come and deceive the nations again to see who that are being born on the earth will serve Christ and reject Satan. All right, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their right hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these people, along with us, reigned with Christ We were given positions of authority. We walked around among the unsaved, among the nations. We mixed with them, and we witnessed to them, told about Jesus, encouraged them to accept him as their Savior. There were salvations going on during that time. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part 
in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's talking about us. No, the judgment, the great white throne judgment, and the second eternal death in Hades, I mean in Gehenna, will have no effect on us. But we shall be priests and kings with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Praise God. And we will reign with him through the reign of a thousand years, millennium reign on earth. Well, that's the end of our series on the blessings of the faithful and our inheritance. And you can see all the things that we are going to enjoy, see, and be part of just because we continue believing in Jesus and don't deny Him, don't walk away from Him, but keep living for Him. Keep going to church. Keep reading your Bible. Talk about Jesus when He opens the door to do so. And remember, God loves you. God loves you so much. And I believe you're going to keep serving God. You're not ever going to turn away from Jesus. So remember, we are praying for you, possibly and I. And um, we, we, we hope to see you very soon. Praise God. Give the Lord God, give Jesus a great big praise now, wherever you are. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many would say, Apostle Theo, I need to be sure I'm going to heaven when I die. Can you pray for me? Yes, I can. While heads are bowed, while eyes are closed. If you want to be sure you're going to heaven one day, you want God to give that assurance to you in your heart, say this little prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place. He was punished for my sins so I can be forgiven. Please forgive me, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come into my heart. Thank you, Jesus. I declare you are the Lord of my life and I'll live for you with all my heart till I see you face to face. God bless you all. Now, if you said that little prayer, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, raise your right hand and say, thank you, Jesus. Praise God, I'm saved. Amen. Thank you for joining us during this episode of Living Life with Dr. Theo and Bev Fulmerantz. We hope that through this inspired teaching, you had an encounter with God. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev Volmerans and would like to enjoy more resources, we hope you will visit our website at www.christianfamilychurch.co.za or for our American listeners, www.christianfamilychurchsa.com.